And this time of the year, boy, that happens an awful lot, that people are focusing on this. And this whole idea of this positive thinking really became popular with this Emile Coué, who there, growing up in France, he started popularizing this idea of positive thinking. He said that if you would, you would do some positive things mentally, you could even get yourself over bronchitis, um, ulcers, heart problems. You could think your well, yourself into total well-being physically, not just emotionally. But you'd have to repeat a certain phrase. And the phrase you'd have to repeat 20 times in a row, two times a day, was this phrase. Every day and every way I'm getting better and better. Every day and every way I'm getting better and better. And if you say that to yourself often enough, frequently enough, you're going to change your entire life, was his, was his whole idea. Now, you and I know that attitude is very important in sports. Thinking positively and going out and saying, okay, I'm going to do our best. We're going to get out there. You know that it can have a tremendous impact. You understand that. You understand. But if you don't have any talent and you're against somebody with great talent, you don't necessarily win your way into thinking positive because I often wonder, well, if it's all about positive thinking, then why doesn't the Super Bowl end in a tie every year? Okay. Sales, there's this idea that's promoted that you've got to think positive, think positive. And we understand that it has some impact, but sometimes it's going over the edge. In fact, we have preachers in every generation recently that are positive thinking preachers that make statements that they say, if you think positively, something good is going to happen to you today. Here's just a few of those positivity quotes that come from the preaching. And some are pretty cliche and pretty, pretty you know, clever was believe in yourself and your abilities. Let your hopes, not your hurt, shape you. you. If you cannot be positive, then be quiet. Now, there's a lot of truth to some of that. Okay? If you focus on being a blessing, you'll be blessed abundantly in all things. Do good things and good things will come your way. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. Is that true of everybody? You're saying, that hasn't happened to me. Okay. Then it must be you're not thinking positive enough. That you, don't, that you still have bills. It doesn't work that way. In fact, it doesn't work the way that Peel said, Christmas waves a magic wand over the world and everything is softer and more beautiful. Okay. Is that the way Scripture says that the life really operates? Okay, that if we just think good thoughts, everything, all of our problems are going to go away. Don't you wish? Okay. If that, you know, think good thoughts and you'll never have any financial problems. You'll have the greatest marriage if you never think a negative thought about family. Okay, well, I understand there's some impact there. I understand that it has some influence. But from a Christian point of view, when we come to this season, and when we were away last week, we saw all kinds of Christmas programs in our favor and haunt, and there was this idea that just kept on coming up about Christmas and just so much hope and so much peace, and boy, if we just celebrate the Christmas season, the world will get better. Let's all drink a Coke and everything will become all right. Okay. The Bible doesn't necessarily say it goes that way. In fact, the story in Judges chapter 7, I find very interesting how God approaches positive thinking or about thinking about how we can make such a difference. As I go through the story of Judges chapter 7, coming from a biblical point of view, here's what God is dealing with. God is dealing with Gideon in this story, and it is one of the clearest stories where God is saying, wait a minute, I don't want you to have self-confidence that turns into pride. I don't want you to be looking at your own abilities. You do that too much. 
And the whole gist of what happens in Judges 7 is God's trying to help Gideon and the Hebrews not to become overconfident in themselves, but rather to become totally confident in him as their Lord and Master. Let me see if we can set up the story. And watch how interesting this is, how God deals with the Hebrews at this time of the year in their life that is really interesting. To get the setting, to understand, you've got to go back with me a little bit. In Judges chapter 7, what has happened is the Jews are living during a period of time when they are in the promised land. They have also not obeyed God and they have allowed a lot of the, or the Canaanites to stay there. They were told to get them out. But they decided to leave them there and they put some of them into subservance to them. And as a result, they became influenced instead of influential. And the Canaanites, we started getting them to go away from serving the Lord God. Part of that was because the Canaanite religion had a lot of drunkenness to it, had a lot of uh, immorality to it, a lot of, a lot of sexuality to it, and that became appealing. They were attracted to those types of things where they could party hardy on you know, the Friday night before and then go and do their Sabbath thing on Sabbath day. And so they had this, this draw towards the Canaanite religion and they were drawing away from Jehovah worship. And so God started saying, okay, we've got to, I've got to stop this. And he started sending in some marauders and some of the Canaanites who had been put under subservience. They started rising up and rebelling against the Jews. And there's a cycle through the book of Judges some 12 different of them, where there are the Canaanites putting the Jews under subservience and taking advantage of them. It's a God spank. It is God dealing with the Jews to see, hey, listen, you didn't deal with something that I told you to deal with, and it's going to come back, and it's going to haunt you. And it was haunting them. Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 tells the story of Gideon and what's haunting his people at that time. It is the Midianites. The Midianites are a group of anti-Jewish individuals who live outside the region where the Jews were. And they would come in every harvest season, and they would ransack all the harvest. It's the eighth year that they've been doing this. And we begin in Judges chapter chapter 7, where all of a sudden they come back, it's harvest season, they want to reap the crop. And they're going to come, they're going to invade, and we've read about some of their invasion in chapter 6, verse 33, that the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the children of the east were gathered together, went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. And it's the idea, they're coming back, they're going to invade. But God has already spoken to Gideon and said, Gideon, you're going to be the one who's going to oppose these. And so he's got Gideon rallying some some Jews to go into battle. But there are so many Midianites. In chapter 7, verse 12, it says how many Midianites gives an idea. The Midianites and the Malachites and all the children of the east lay along the valley of Jezreel like grasshoppers for a multitude and their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for the multitude. We're going to find out later. It's 135,000 invaders. That's a big group. Gideon blows the bugle and says, come, come and join me. Jews, let's revolt. We've been, we've been put in bondage we don't have many weapons, but you follow me. Well, God has already given him a reputation. He's got a nickname called Jeroboam. That is a, a, a Baal fighter. Baal is the Canaanite god. And so he blows the trumpet and the Jews come to him. A number of the patriotic Jews, they gather to him for a battle. And so they're rallying, according to chapter 6, verse 34. He's blowing the trumpet. Some of the Jews are coming from verse 35 of chapter 6, Manasseh, as well as Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. They're all sending some of their warriors to come and to stop the Midianite invasion. And it says 
in verse 1 of chapter 7, there Jeroboam, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod. Now they're going to face them in a battlefield. Here it's setting it up. So the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And so there they have 32,000 Jews have come. They're going to take on an army of 135,000 of the Midianites and Amalekites. Now, I remind you, the Midianites and Amalekites, they have weaponry. The Jews have farming implements. They are outnumbered basically four to one. And so they're going to they're face them. These guys are patriotic. They're like the revolutionaries taking on the major world power of Britain some 200 years ago in America's history. This is going to be a battle that's, that they don't look like they can possibly win without some help. And so they're rallying there and there, and they're, they're getting set. But then, even though they're vastly outnumbered, chapter 7, verse 2, is an interesting phrase. God says to Gideon, and I don't know if you've seen this before, the Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. What do you mean? We're outnumbered four to one. We have squirt guns. They have real guns. And you say we're overloaded. And God gives the reason why. Notice the next phrase. This is an interesting phrase in Scripture where he says, you have too many soldiers for me to give you the Midianites in the battle lest you say what? You say it's, up, it's all been by you. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, We have saved ourselves. Lest you say that it's all about your positive approach. Lest you say it's all about what you have done. You've got too many. I've got to make this very clear to you that it's not you that will win this battle. And odds of four to one, some of you are going to become too proud. And so I've got to break that pride. I've got to deal with it before it raises its ugly head. I've got to remove that self-confidence in 32,000. And I've got to make you totally confident on me. And so what God does to reduce Israel and Gideon's pride, their self-confidence, he gives them a couple tests. He tests them. He says, Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to whittle away the, the battle. I want you to get rid of a lot of these people. And I want you to give the people two different tests. Test number one is this. Test number one is faith. I want you to take only those who have unwavering, unwavering faith at this moment. Now what he does is he tells them, according to verse 3, he says, I want you therefore to go and proclaim in the ears of all of your troops, all 32,000 of your troops, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. Okay, now to understand this text, go with me to Deuteronomy. Go backwards into your Bible and go back a few passages. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy 20 was what Moses laid out several gen couple generations before they moved into the land. And he gave them the formula that they were to use in determining who was to be enlisted in the army. Chapter 20, jump down into Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and a a people more than you, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is with you, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be when you come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto you and say, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day unto the battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, do not tremble, neither be ye afraid because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And go down to verse 8. 
The officer shall speak further unto the people and shall say, Whatever man is here that is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his own heart. So God had already told them that if somebody's going into battle and they don't have faith, they don't have confidence in how I'm going to give this, this the enemy to you, then they shouldn't be here lest they become an influence for the negative for other people. So I want them to go. And so Gideon does exactly what God had said in Deuteronomy and what God had told him, again, repeats in Judges 7. And he stands up before the troops and he says, hey, listen, if you're afraid of what's going to happen, go home. And a few of the people go home. Now read the next verse in Judges chapter 7. Okay, we've read down to verse 3. He gives you a number of how many of the people say, or at the end of verse 3, he gives you an idea of how many of the people say, well, if I'm getting... Um, a ticket to be able to go home. I'm taking the ticket and they go home. It's just a few. Right? What's it say in your Bible? Okay, 22,000 leave out of 32,000. You know, you had odds that were 4 to 1, that you were outnumbered. Now the odds are basically, you know, 1 to 13. It's just gotten much worse from from people's point of view. And so they're, God's whittling down their confidence and saying, I don't want you to be thinking it's about you, it's about you, it's about you. Look at what we can do. Look at what, he says, and I'm afraid you're going to do that. Therefore, I'm going to take away from you. I'm going to whittle away from you so that you have more confidence in me than you do in yourself. And I don't want you to become proud of what you can do. I want you to be dependent upon what I will do. And so he gives them the test. And this test ends up that basically they are really outnumbered at this point. And then he gives them another test. He gives them a test called focus. He says, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to see which one of you are really going to be focused here. You have faith. We got 10,000 of you. Now I want to say who's focused. And the Lord came, it says, in verse 4, it says, And the Lord said unto Gideon, Now right there I put in my Bible, I wouldn't want to talk to God anymore. If I were Gideon, I wouldn't want this conversation. Every time he talks to God, it gets worse in his thinking. Okay, it gets, you know, God diminishes his number, takes away. And the Lord God says to him, he said, "Um, too many people. It's 13 to 1, 14 to 1. You got too many. You know, you're going to become proud if I let you win this battle. Bring them down to the water and I'm going to try them. I'm going to test them. And it shall be that of whom I say, this shall go, the same shall go with you. Whosoever I say, you know, doesn't, they're not going to go with you. So Gideon brings them down to the water, and the people and the Lord says, everyone that laps the water with his tongue as dog laps, him you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone that bows down the knees. The number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, and he goes on. Here's what he's doing. He's taking them down, and he's saying basically, okay, I want to whittle this troops down. It's not, you know, it's not that you're, you're inept, but I want you to depend upon me. And he gives them the test. And he takes them to the spring of Herod, which is right nearby where the two troops are. Basically, you've got the Jews up there, and you've got the Midianites here. The spring of Herod would be at the bottom of the balcony steps, okay, real close to where the Jews are. Herod means trembling. The string of a fearful moment. Well, that, that would describe what could be going on. And the test is, okay, we're going to drink. If you're going to get down and all... I'm going to do this. I'm not going to get back up. Um, you drink like this into the water, or you go like this in, with the water. And that's going to be the test that they're going to give them. And the reason this is important is who's focusing. 
Now you have to understand when you do that, this test is very simple. They've been there, they've traveled, they've gathered, they need water. This is the spring that's going to give them the water. But it has more significance to them uh, in that sense that not only is it making a provision, but it's going to show where they're thinking. To get an idea, there's the Mount Gilead where they are, the one on the top picture, or Mount Gilead or Gaboa, it's called different names at times. And let me see, my pointer is not going to point the way I want. Over on the top right-hand corner is where the Jews were. Right down in the middle left center is the spring of Herod. Right to your left of the picture is where the Midianites are. If we can kind of picture it this way, maybe this, this graphic will help you out a little bit. Whoops, there we go. Where it helps is the Midianites, they're going to be real close to the Midianite camp. So he's taking them down into the plain where the Midianites, who know that troops have left, who know the Jews are there, who know that they're depleted, they're going to see this number go down and they're going to be within stone's disc, tossing distance from the Midianite camp. So if you're going to go close to the enemy and you're going to be preparing for battle, what should you be looking out for? The enemy. So he's having them basically saying those who are alert and observant, as opposed to those who are so famished, they want the water that they don't care, they're just satisfying their heart's desire, their belly's desire. And so he wants to see who's focused, who's being aware in case there's an ambush, if there's an attack, who's, who's being ready, who's being really fervent about this battle. And so they do the test, and it ends up that the Midianites, you know, who are watching everything that's happening, they, uh, they basically end up with a number of 300 men. When it's all said and done, they got 300 men. Now, can we pause for just a moment and make a couple observations? God knows the Jews have a tendency towards pride. God knows that they would, that if he lets them go into battle with all 32,000, they're going to say, we did something phenomenal. And so he doesn't want that to happen. God often knows our sinful tendencies. He often knows where we can become proud. And he is often trying to help us to avoid that, to overcome those tendencies, even by putting things into our life, taking things out of our life that will help us to become more dependent upon him. This is exactly what happened in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a passage that many of you know, where he says, my grace is sufficient, that you know, when I am weak, then am I strong. You have to understand the full context. It starts off in the chapter that Paul is saying, I knew of a man who passed away and went to heaven. Most of us think it's Paul. And he says that he saw heaven, but he won't share what he saw because there are things beyond description and beyond our ability to describe. And he says, because if I had that, that was me with that experience, and because I am writing down revelation and God is using me to record scripture, I have to be careful that I'm given to pride. That I am saying, look at what I have done for God. Look at how God is using me. So God gave me a thorn in the flesh. He took away my full, physical, complete health so that instead of becoming proud, I would become humble. I would learn to depend upon him more and more. That I would say that there is a glitch in what I'm doing. There's a, there's a problem with that I have. That I can't serve, I can't work the way I normally worked. And I have to become more dependent upon him for strength. More dependent upon him for ability. More dependent upon him for wisdom. So God gave me this thorn in the flesh. He allowed Satan to bring it into my life. And as a result, I prayed three times that it would be removed 
But God knowing my tendencies, God didn't take it away. He let this trial in my life so that I would become not self-confident, but more confident in him. And that's exactly what's happening with the Jews. God is saying that I'm not going to let you go into battle with 32,000 because I think you're going to be overconfident. I know you will be. And even if you had 10,000, you would still be overconfident. So I'm going to take you to a real weak moment in a battle scene. I'm going to take you down to a number where you only end up basically having 300. And then you'll be totally dependent upon me and you won't be dependent upon yourself. Now here's the, the, the fact. You and I can never be too small for God to use us, but we can be too big. We can be too big in our own eyes to be used by God. And so God at times allows trials. God at times allows situations to bring us to the point that we don't focus on our abilities. We don't focus on our successes, but we become more dependent upon him. Oh, you have story after story that relates this idea of not becoming proud, not becoming haughty, not becoming full of self. King Canute was one of the early, early kings historically who would be preceding you know, all the different round tables and King Arthur. He was there in that region over Norway, Great Britain, and some of those North Sea countries. And as he was ruling over them, he has himself surrounded in court like most politicians, even in modern day. They end up with people who are right around them telling them how great they are, how wonderful they are. And King Canute had a lot of these people. <clears throat> and so they were his courtiers who would come and trying to, trying to get his attention, trying to get his favors, would talk about how powerful he is. And you are so powerful that some of them started saying, King Canute, you are such an excellent king. You are so powerful. We know that if you went to the sea, seaside and you said to the tide, stop, it would listen to you. Because you're so awesome. So he had his throne carried down by the tide. He had to put it into the water and he stood up before them all and he announced the seas were to stop. No more tide. And as it kept on coming, he turned and he said, there's only one. And only one who is mighty enough to control nature. And that is God. I am not a God. I am a man. He had a right for somebody with his authority and his rule that he didn't let that success, that, that power go to his head, but he maintained an attitude of humility. There's in a museum in Germany, in Bonn, Germany, there's a museum where they have Beethoven's, one of his pianos he used. And not too long ago, there was a, you know, a bit ago, but in the story goes that there was a gal coming from America who was visiting and she was a piano teacher and she was, a, she was you know, a good pianist. And she bribed one of the guards there to let her play the piano for a little bit. Just a few minutes, but so that she could say she played the same piano Beethoven did. She bribed the guard and she played her little, her little piece and she walked back and she's so happy with herself that she was able to show her skills to the others on Beethoven's piano. And she made comment to the guard. She said to him, she says, Is it, uh, isn't it true that most everybody who comes through, all the famous pianists, they've probably played like I just did? And the guard said, absolutely not. He said, in fact, they, most of them have the same attitude that Paderewski, who was just here a few weeks ago, he had. The curator of the museum offered to let him sit down and play. And his response is, I'm not good enough to touch Beethoven's piano. Most of us are like that American. We're very self-confident because of what abilities we have. And we become oriented towards lifting ourselves up, wanting to be noticed, wanting to have the recognition. 
wanting to have people laud us and applaud us. And if they don't, we're going to go elsewhere, find another church. We're going to, you know, leave, break off some family fellowships if the rest of the family doesn't. Notice how great we are. Humility is an attitude that we really need to strive towards. The problem is about the time we think we have humility, we've just become proud. But being a mindset that says it's not us. It's not about my ability or your ability. It's not how great we are. It's about humbly being used. I read a story that I just found phenomenal. Dale Moody, which is a hero to most of us who are born again because of his impact in America 100 years ago plus and how he preached the word. He became so famous that he started this uh, Northfield Bible Conference up in Massachusetts area, New England area. He started it, and people from around the country would come for this two, three weeks that he would be there, and he would speak, and he would do a lot of training. Well, the second or third year that he did it, there was a number of preachers that came from Europe that came as a group because they wanted to sit under the great D.L. Moody to hear about how it's done in a church and, and how to do ministry. And he was becoming heroic on both sides of the Atlantic as far as his service for the Lord. But he didn't let it go to his head. And one of the displays of it was that that second night or so that he was there in this second, third year of this conference, he was greeting people and try to, in the first day or two, try to see everybody who came and personally thank them for coming. He would do that at mealtime. And then in the evenings, as people went to the different, the, the different rooms in the dormitory, he would go to the rooms and try to engage the people and talk with them. And he came to that section where all those European preachers were, some 20, 30 of them, and in the dorm area where they at, and he noticed something that he had seen in Europe, that outside their doors were their dress shoes. And he totally forgot that in their culture, they would leave the dress shoes outside the door so that one of the household servants would be able to polish the shoes during the night. And it was very customary at that time in Europe that that would be the case. And Moody thought, I never prepared for that. These people, you know, this is something they expect and it's something important to them. So he went and talked to some of his students that were, that were there at the conference and he mentioned that there's a number of you know, preachers up there, and they put their shoes out, and they're expecting, and sure it'd be nice that somebody would polish their shoes. Hint, hint, hint. And none of the students took up the hint. Yeah. Their response was, how could they think that highly of themselves? How could they think that? And he tried to explain it. It wasn't that they were thinking proud of themselves. It was their culture. It was normal for them. So the story goes, which, by the way, Moody never shared But the person who found Moody in the middle of the night doing this, they shared. That Mr. Moody went back and gathered up all the shoes, marking where they belonged. And he went to a private little room and he started polishing everybody's shoes. This friend of his came by and saw a light and entered in and talked with him and found this preacher friend, found him and gave him a hand. And they polished shoes for hours and then put the shoes back. Moody never said a word. Nobody ever commented on it. But his humility made an impact when the story came out later and later that somebody who was the host, the great Moody, would humble himself. That's the attitude we're supposed to have. An attitude of not being lauded, not being praised, not thinking it's about us, but rather we're supposed to be thinking, you know what? It's all about God. It's all about God and serving God in a way that pleases him. 
And so God in Judges 7 is saying, I want to break down your pride, Gideon. I want to, I want to diminish this. I want to whittle this down that you're not thinking you're something amazing and something awesome. And, and the people rallied to you and 32,000 came and boy, you, 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 you're something special. I want you to realize that though you are special in my eyes, it's me. It's me you need to rely upon. And so he tells them, you know, break it down. And he breaks down his, that self-confidence like he told him. And then he says, okay, you need to trust. You need to trust me. You're down to 300 people. Then watch what happens. 300 people are left. And we read by verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men that have lapped, I will save you and deliver Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go every man to his place. So it talks about, you know, they're getting ready for the battle. But look it down in verse 9. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Gideon, Arise, get you down unto the host. I have delivered them. Okay, you're going to win. You're going to win. But if you still have some apprehensions here, here's God's grace and God's kindness and patience to Gideon. Go down with Pura, your servant, to the host. And you're going to hear what they shall say. That's the host of Midianites. Remember, their, their camps are real close to each other. And afterwards, your hand, your hand shall be strengthened to go into battle, to go down unto the host. So Gideon went down with Pura, his servant, unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the host of the east, they lay as the grasshoppers for the multitude. And when Gideon was come, verse 13, behold, there's a man that told a dream unto his fellow soldier and said, hey, I dreamed a dream. And there's this cake of barley bread. Barley bread is the most... Poor man's bread, cheapest bread. It's kind of, you know, the crust, if you would. The piece that nobody, you know, particularly wants. And he says, the cake of barley bread, it tumbled into the host of the Midianites in this dream. And it came unto a tent and it flattened the tent and overturned it that the tent lay upside down. His fellow soldier said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For into his hand has God delivered Midian and all the hosts. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation that Gideon is built up. How does God build up our confidence in him? One is through prophecy. He lets Gideon hear about this whole dream. This dream that is understood as being a revelation from God, a vision from God, a dream from God that reassures Gideon that says, you're going to win. You're a humble piece of bread. You're something that's poor. You don't have much, but it's going to wipe out this vast army that is so secure and so confident that they're in their tents. They don't have walls around their camp. The thing just rolls right through and flattens the tent. And so he hears this, and God gives this revelation through a dream to one of the Midianite soldiers, and he gives the interpretation. And Gideon overhears all this, and he's able to say, Wow! God is at work here right now. And even the Midianites know that. They're, they're saying that God is so powerful and God is so awesome that we're going to win this battle. But not only is it done through prophecy, that God used revelation to bolter, bolster his faith, but I want you to see something else. He used providence. He used the idea of watch, watch how God just was working. That Gideon so quickly could understand God's hand in all this that all of a sudden Gideon comes and think this through. Gideon had to come to the right place at the right time at that very moment to hear what, this was, what was going on in the Midianite camp. So God in providence gives him safety to get this close. Earshot. 
to hear two soldiers talking about a dream. He gets there to the exact spot where there's going to be these two guys talking. He gets there at the exact time when they're talking about it. God is there giving the, or he sees God giving the interpretation. All this is happening. That makes it very clear. God is working. God is working. God is doing something. And then he hears about divine fear in the camp of Gideon. I mean, who's afraid of, what army of 135,000 is afraid of 300? Go explain that. They've been coming, doing this for eight years. They're not afraid of the Israelites. They aren't afraid of the people. They've been attacking and attacking and attacking for all this time. But now, something has changed. They have, they have a, a rampaging epidemic going through their camp. It's not dysentery, it is fear. Fear that is invading the Midianites. Where did that come from? How did they get that? God is at work. And Gideon can stand back as he's going back and saying, wow, God is, God is moving. God has said it's going to happen. God's told me it's going to happen. And this battle, here, here's where the bottom line comes. Gideon is putting it all together to realize this battle is God's battle. This isn't me. This is the greatness of God. It's not about how many I have. It's not about what I have done before. This is God working. And what does he do in response to that? When he realizes this is God. This is a God thing that's going on. He does two things. Did you see it? Did you see it in the last verse that we stopped at? When he does two, his immediate response, verse 15, that it says, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation, he does what? First thing he does, he worships. First thing he does, he pauses, he praises. He gives God the glory. Then he returns to the camp of the host of Israel and look at the word he says. It's done. The battle's over. He uses past tense. The battle hasn't taken place, but in his mind and God's mind, it's done. We've won. He has got that confidence in God. He's got that, that, that attitude that this is God thing that's happening and God is working. You see what God has done. God is moving in a way, and God will move. They will win a phenomenal battle. This, there's going to be 300 against 135,000. Not one of the 300 will be hurt, will suffer a wound, but all 135,000 will be wiped out. And they don't even do the slaying. We'll talk about that when we get back to the book. It, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, let's take a bunch of the senior ladies and let them go against LeBron and play for the trophy. And they whoop him. Never, never expected. It's kind of like taking a midget league football team and going against the world champion Patriots and the Patriots losing 69 to nothing. That's the type of battle. It's a phenomenal situation, but it's not because of Gideon. It's not because of his abilities or those who could blow a trumpet or those who could hold a fire a certain way. It's God. It's God, it's God, it's God. And his whole point is, I wanted these people just to learn this whole idea that it's not us. God's, the whole story is designed, it's written, not just to give us something and say, whoa, that's kind of cool, and the Jews can, can talk about something heroic. It is about them learning and us learning as generations go by. It's not to have, it's not about us having confidence in me. It's not about us saying, look what I can do. It's more about us stop trusting ourselves and having more confidence in God. And trusting him and leaning on him and trust and and relying upon him, praying to him more, waiting upon him more, being patient for him to work. 
Not becoming manipulative with the gospel. Not becoming, you know, domineering. But rather let the Spirit of God do the work as we stop trusting ourselves, but we lean upon Him. And not get frustrated. Not get angry that it looks like the odds are against us. Some of you know what I mean. The odds are against you when you look at the number of doctor's appointments you have. They look like 135,000. And they're discouraging. Some of you know what I mean when, it's, when you talk about the bills. They are astronomical compared to the paycheck. Some of you know the pressure that you get from family members to you know, not serve, not follow the Lord. And you, you, you feel the battle, you feel the pressure. And it's like, stop trusting in what you can do to change people's minds. Let it be the Spirit of God. Let it be the Lord to strengthen you. Rely more and more upon Him. So what do we walk away? I think this. We need to walk away believing more in God's might compared to our own might. We need to recognize that we are what He says we are. He says that without me, we can do nothing. But we don't grasp that. We struggle with that. We we think we can do so much by ourselves that we can raise those kids, that we can can be successful in work, that we we can change the world around us in and of ourselves. And all we have to do is think more positively about what I can do. And this story is telling us just the opposite. Stop relying upon ourselves. Stop thinking about how great we are and think about how great he is. That he is the greatest one. That it is his battles. That he is the one doing it. There's a pilot that was doing a shuttle from New England area down to New York area. And he said, the story goes that as they were coming in, they got into this small plane that was just a shuttle plane. They got into bad, 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 bad turbulence. And the people were just, things were thrown around and the people were strapped in. And when they landed, the pilot was very pleased with himself that he had successfully brought the plane down. And so he did what the policy of the company was. He was the first one out there, and he was to greet the people as they get off this commuter jet. And so they're getting off, and they are really, several are really congratulating him. You did a wonderful job. We were so scared. Phenomenal. Fantastic. You did such a great job. And he is beaming. Until the last passenger to get out was a little old lady. She got out, she looked at him and says, Can I ask you one question? He goes, What's that? Did we land or were we shot down? Okay. (laughs) His bubble kind of bursted. Yeah, that she kind of put it in perspective that it wasn't as great as he thought. Preachers do this all the time. We think that we do something phenomenal. This guy was pastoring a church for a number of years. He brought the church along very well. He brought them out of some a lot of conflicts and difficulties, but he thought his ministry was over at this time, and so he gets up that Sunday morning and gives his resignation. And after it's done, that service is done, he's standing at the door and he's greeting people and several people are shaking his hand, thanking him for his ministry. And, and one lady comes up and she can tell she's crying. She is really upset by the resignation. And she says, I can't believe you're resigning. I can't believe it. This is, this is terrible. He says, it's not that terrible. He said, don't worry. God will bring the right man and your church, the church will be blessed and things are going to get so much better. God is going to work. And she says, I know, that's what upsets me. He goes, what do you mean? She says, that's what they said with the last three pastors. And look, it just gets worse. Yeah, so his bubble was broken. It happens all the time. That you and I think that we are something really good. Do you know what God says about us? Now, if you're visiting for the first time, I don't mean to be so negative, but I want to be very forward with you. 
I'm very honest with you. God says that I'm a sinner and so are you. God's word says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the expectation of God, the standard of God. The standard of God to get into heaven is perfection. And none of us are perfect. We all fall real short. Now, some of us are way down here. Some of you are better than, us, than most of us. But we're still, we all fall short. But in our flesh, we think we're great. We can get to heaven because I'm good, I'm this, I'm that. I'm you know, good-looking, got money, learned, you know, learned the books of the Bible. Uh, I go to church, I was baptized. And we think it's all about us. It's not about us to get to heaven. Jesus said very simply, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets into, comes unto the Father, but it's him. But we've got this so turned around that we're something special, that I can make my way into heaven. No. We've got to come to the point that realize that even when it comes to our eternal destiny, it's not us, it's God. It's not about what you and I do, it's about what he has done at Calvary. When he cried out, it is finished, the debt is paid. You need to believe upon him. You need to be born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You need to be born again. And just like the infant who's birthed physically, who does nothing, the mother does all the painting and the agony and the laboring, you and I become the recipient of eternal life when we finally say, let you, God, You've done the work. You've done the painting. You've done the laboring. I want the life that you can give me. Please forgive me of my sins. I repent of them and give me eternal life. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's coming to a point where we stop believing in our own selves and we trust in God's might. We, uh, we need to do number two. We need to believe that God's mission that he has given us is the most important thing that we have to do. Too often, we think that our mission, our activity, and he is saying to Gideon, Gideon, the most important thing you can do right now is what I'm telling you to do. For you and me, it's a different mission than going out and fighting the Midianites. But for you and me, it's sharing the gospel. It's getting the missions out. It's teaching the word of God. It's training the kids. It's discipling others. It's building churches. It is being charitable. It is doing the things that God says are the most important thing. It's realizing that Jesus, as he preached, and he said to his disciples, who were so concerned about food and about shelter for the night, that they go off, and when they come back, they see Jesus ministering the word of God. And they say, Jesus, you know, what were you doing? Well, I was sharing the word of God with somebody, this woman. You know, by the well, I was sharing the word of God with them. And they said, well, that's okay, you're done now. Here, let's eat. And he says, no, no. My meat is to do the will of my Father. And he said, that's where my fulfillment is. Is that the way it is with you? In the busyness of the Christmas season, is the fulfilling part of your life doing these things? Or is it gift buying? Is it the decorating of the tree? And those things aren't evil, but they often can easily draw us away from the important task and mission that God has given us. The mission to give out the gospel. That we need to rally together and say, let's get that gospel out next weekend. Let's get the gospel out. Whether you're in the program called reenactment or not, you can be a part of it. Praying. Inviting. Contributing to say, let's get the gospel out to this community. 
There are people who will not darken the door of a church for a regular service, but they'll come to something like that, and we say, this is the mission. This is the reason that we celebrate Christmas, is giving out the message of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. It's not just to get some days off school or get a Christmas bonus check. It's about sharing our faith in our beloved Savior. That's our mission. There's something else I think we should walk away with. We need to believe in God's ministering around and through us. That we need to be like a Gideon that looks around and say, providentially, what's going on around me? What is God setting us up to do? What is God saying? He's, he says he's going to give us the, the Midianites in battle, and Gideon walks away and says, it's true, he's really going to do it. What has God promised you? What, there's a mom who is struggling with the promises of God. Her little kid is going off to school for the first time, and she's, uh, she's saying, okay, you know, you need to walk, go to first grade. I can walk you to school each day because they won't ride the bus and because uh, the distance. And the little boy, he is just, he is not going to be caught dead walking to school with his mom. That is not for big kids to have mom take him to school. You understand that, parents? That, you know, this little boy, he's, he's big. He's in first grade. And so this little boy is saying, you know, Mom, I don't want you walking. But she doesn't know what to do. She is really flustered. So she's telling him, okay, you can walk with your friend who, that really cheers her up. His friend is in first grade too. You know, so she's still struggling with it. And she's, but she's going to let him go and start the walk. And so she, she thinks, okay, I need to calm myself down. And I'm getting him flustered. So the first couple, two, three, four, five days, she's quoting a passage of scripture as she's getting him, you know, buttoned up and ready to walk out the door. And it's that passage of scriptures from Psalm 23. It talks about, you know, the Lord is our shepherd, shall not want, and how, you know, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And she, but she's still fretting about it. A few days go by, and her neighbor, who she sees as she's watching her boy go, her neighbor, a couple doors down, is out with a stroller walking her baby. And the neighbor stops and sees mom still in tears, and they talk a little bit, and finds out that the neighbor every day walks around the neighborhood and passes the school about the same time. So the neighbor says, listen, I'll follow at a distance and just keep an eye on him. And I'll just watch your little boy, and, but I'll keep my distance. And I go this every day, you know. And so now the arrangement's in place. A few more days go by, and the two little boys are walking to school that one morning, and as they're walking to school, the one little boy says, hey, did you notice that lady following us? And he goes, yeah. He says, she kind of creeps me out. And he goes, no, I know her. Well, how do you know her? Well, you know, she's, she's a neighbor. Her name is Mrs. Goodnest. And her baby's name is Marcy. He says, well, how do you know them? He says, oh, my mom talks about them every morning. Surely goodness and mercy <laughs> shall follow me all the days of my life. That's, that's surely goodness and her daughter Marcy. <laughs> and then he added, according to what my mom says, I better get used to it. They're going to follow me every day of my entire life. <laughs> you know. can, I, can I throw something at you with that in mind? God is following you every day. God is following you every day. He is doing what he says. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He wants to minister through you. He wants to be working in you. He is always around. This Lord that we love and that we come to worship this morning, he's working around your life. He wants you to be an impact in people. 
Just look around on the individuals he's placed in your life that you can have an influence in, that you can make a difference in their life, that you could reach for Christ and get them on fire for the Lord. God is working in and through you. You know, we have these pokers for those of you who have wood burners at home. Okay? They make, you know, good pokers if you want to irritate somebody. That's not the design for them. There's basically, you know, get in there and move that wood around. You know what's interesting about these pokers? That most of the time it's just kind of putting in and moving around the coals or, you know, the wood, and we take it out. And it's a little bit warm. But if we leave this poker in that fire for a while, isn't it true that the fire gets into the poker? The poker starts becoming really hot, sometimes red hot. And now that poker... If you were to take it somewhere else, it can ignite something. And it can be influential that way. But it doesn't get red hot until it gets the fire in it. You know what happens to most of us? This is what we do typically on Sunday in our Christian life. We poke around a little bit with church. Maybe we poke around a little bit with our Bible. But we never leave ourselves really close to Christ where the fire of Christ gets in our heart. And he all of a sudden really gets us fired up, where then we can turn around and we can ignite the world around us. And we wonder, we come to these Christmas season, we say, well, yeah, 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 I've heard this before about being a witness. I've heard this before about making a difference, and it doesn't happen. That's probably because you're not letting yourself to be abiding in Christ where he can really fire you up. God wants to work in you. God wants to work through you. He wants to do some amazing things. And it's not through you just thinking positive. It's from you having a relationship with Jesus Christ. That relationship starts by being born again. And then it blossoms by abiding in him. And he wants to use you. He wants to do a work. It comes down to you saying, Jesus, I want you. I give myself to you.